Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. Listen each week for updated content and be sure to share with your friends. We hope this podcast is a blessing and a resource to you as you pursue God daily. I want to talk to you today about a topic that's very dear to me. And I think it's timely, not just for our church, but for the times that we're all living in. I want to talk to you today about revival. Come on, somebody say revival. Write that word down in all capital letters. We're going to unpack this over the next couple of Sundays. You know, there was a man by the name of William Seymour, and he was born in 1870, uh, the son of former slaves from Centerville, Louisiana, born down on the bayou. Uh, He grew up in abject poverty. He had little to no education, but as a young man, he began to have visions from God. He was an advocate for racial reconciliation. Uh, He felt like that the body of Christ would be the example of unity that would bring healing across racial lines. He also believed in the empowerment and the leadership of women. And so in the late 1800s, he he moved to Los Angeles, California, and he he started a church. In fact, after his first sermon... (laughs) The elders kicked him out of the church. Uh, can you imagine that? You preach one time, everybody's mad at you, and they kick you out the room. So he's kicked out of the, the only church that he had ever pastored after one sermon. There was a couple in that church that really had a heart for young William. And so they opened up their home to him. And the three of them began a prayer meeting out of this home. God began to stir in their midst, and three became 30. It became 60. Soon, that small house was packed with so many people. God was doing something in that prayer meeting. So many people crowded that home that the front porch began to crack and break. So they needed to find a a bigger building. They went to the central business district down in Los Angeles on 312 Azusa Street. And they began to pray. They held these 24-hour prayer gatherings. Soon they started having services. They did three services a day, seven days a week for 18 months straight. And the power of God began to fill that space and occupied that place. And they saw miracles. They, they saw thousands come to Jesus. Thousands were, were healed. Many were, were filled with the Holy Spirit. Hundreds of missionaries were sent out all around the world. This became the great Azusa Street Revival of 1906. Many people look at William Seymour as one of the founding fathers of the modern Pentecost movement. There are over 20 million people a part of that in America and over 200 million around the world, all because of one man desperate for God, committed to prayer. I want to talk to you about revival today. And many of us have different pictures and images of what revival looks like. I mean, when I say that word revival, what thoughts come to your mind? I thought about just my own experience. I thought about tent meetings. Have you ever been to a tent meeting Come on, outside under a tent, people gather around. I thought of tent meetings. Uh, I thought of endless church services. 
I mean, back in the day when I was a kid growing up, man, we had meetings that lasted week after week. I thought about evangelists with those big evangelistic hairstyles and the polyester suits, you know, dressed to the nines. Uh, I, I thought about, you know, some of the charismatic things that I've seen in church and, and some, you know, e- emotional responses and, and just a spiritual outpouring. Uh, I thought about song services that lasted so long. <laughs> Come on, we used to say when I was a kid, man, church was so good. We just sang and sang and sang. You know, there wasn't any preaching. It was amazing how church was always good when there wasn't any preaching. Uh, I don't know what thoughts come to your mind when you hear the word revival, but I want us to take a look, not just at the word, but what it takes to experience these great moves of God. You know, the word revival is actually a combination of two parts. It comes from a Latin word, vivir, which means to live. It means life. And, of course, the word re means again. So, literally, revival means to live again or to bring back to life. You know, in the Old Testament, there are 15 or so different documented revivals. And it's amazing when you do a study of revivals throughout history, not just biblical history, but even modern history. There are certain characteristics and themes that are consistent. Every revival began when there was moral decay or spiritual decline on a national level. Can I tell you, if there's ever a day that America needs revival... It's now. We can look all around us and we can see the spiritual dynamics and the moral decline of our culture. You know, it's interesting. When it comes to revival, you can't schedule revival. You can't mandate revival. You can't force it to happen. You can't sing loud enough or long enough. You can't schedule enough guest speakers. It's not something that man can manipulate. In fact, I thought this was a good thought. Uh, I want you to write this down. We can't force God's hand, but we can prepare our hearts for what God wants to do. We can't force God to move the way we want him to move, but we can prepare our hearts and be in position for what God wants to do. In, in Exodus 33, there's a, one of these documented Old Testament revivals. I want you to turn there with me. Let me give you a quick context. Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days with God. He, many of times he would pull away and God would speak to him directly. And, and, you know, on that mountain, God gave him these stone tablets called the Ten Commandments. What's interesting is not only did God give Moses the Ten Commandments, but at the same time, God gave Moses the provision for the tabernacle. It's interesting how God knew that man would break every one of those Ten Commandments and would need forgiveness. And the tabernacle was the model, was the layout for which man could be forgiven. So here Moses has been on this mountain for 40 days. And the people now at the foot of the mountain are getting restless. Where's Moses? What's happening? And so you know the story. Uh, They want to worship something. And so they say, hey, Aaron, you know, what's happened to this, this man of God? Make us some idols so that we may worship. And so from all the jewelry of the people, they made these golden calves. And so here Moses is on the mountain with God and he hears something happening down, you know, where the people are. And and he walks into this scenario where they're worshiping an idol. 
a, a, a golden calf, and God is so upset, and he tells the children of Israel, he says, I'm going to lead you with my angel. I, I'm not going with you personally. You are so stubborn. You are so stiff-necked. I'm not walking with you personally, but I'll send my angel to lead you. Uh, what's interesting is God didn't deny them his promise. He didn't deny them his provision. He didn't even deny them his protection, but he denied them his presence. And look at where we find this, starting with verse 4. Exodus 33, verse 4. The Bible says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If, if for a single moment I should show up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. It's almost like God saying, hey, go to your room until I figure out what to do with you. You can sense the discipline and the correction. God tells them, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb Onward. The first thought I want you to see is this, and this is key. This is crucial. If you and I are going to experience a dynamic, a powerful move of God's presence, number one, it starts with repentance. It starts with repentance. You know, repent, the word repent is not a bad word. It gets a bad rap, but it's not a bad word. It's actually the most beautiful word in all the Bible. You know, sometimes when we think about repent, you know, the reason why we're a little cautious or reluctant is maybe we, we think about that angry street preacher on the corner. It's like, repent. Ah, come on, pointing that finger of doom at you. Repent. It's kind of a scary face, isn't it? Man, I don't want my face to freeze like that. Repent. Uh, repent's not an ugly word. You know, repent is the most beautiful word in all the Bible because repentance is what gives us hope for change. Man, it gives us a, a, a hope for changing of the heart, a change of mind, and a complete change of direction. If you need change in your life, repentance is the doorway that allows that to happen. You see, this is a picture of repentance when, when they were stripped of their ornaments. You see, they used these ornaments in pagan idol worship. And the stripping away of these ornaments as they worshiped the golden calf was a picture of repentance. You know, the, the people had looked to Moses. And in Moses' absence, they filled it with this golden calf. Here's what I felt God show me as I was studying this this week. You know, each one of us, you and I, were created to worship. I mean, we were wired for worship. When God made us instinctively, we were created to worship something or someone. And if we're not worshiping God, then we're going to fill that space with hundreds of other things. You know, you think about it. If you look across the landscape of our own culture, we have many golden calves. We worship everything. I mean, we worship sports. Uh, we worship money. We worship entertainment. We worship pleasure. We worship fame. We worship power. In the absence of God, we will find something to fill that empty space. And our culture is filled with golden calves. We are filled with idolatry. You know, the interesting thing about idols is uh, idols will make promises that only God can keep. 
You know, an idol will promise you fulfillment. An idol will promise you happiness. An idol will promise you value. And really, only God can give fulfillment, happiness, and value. And when we kick God out, we open the door to worship anything and everything. You know, John Calvin once said this. He said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. And I feel so challenged in my own soul that if you and I are going to experience a great outpouring of God in this day, then we have to strip ourselves of our idols. We have to repent. You see, it does us no good to pray for revival if we're not willing to cry out in repentance for our sins. You know, we have to lay these things aside. Uh, you, You can read about revival. You can write books about it. You can study it. You can lecture it. But unless you're repenting, you'll never experience it. And church, I want you to hear this from my heart to yours. When we cry out to God in repentance, when we say, Lord, I'm sorry. When we say, God, forgive me. When we say, God, would you come into my life and take that top spot again? When we do that, we begin to see a shift. There is a change that's going to take place. And I sense that we stand on the edge of a great move of God. And the gateway to that is the prayer of repentance. You know, this morning I woke up to a terrible noise. It was my alarm clock. How many of you, when you wake up in the morning, that alarm greets you? You know, you set that alarm when you go to bed at night. And it has a very important purpose. Its function is to get you up, to get you out of bed, and to start your day. Now, sometimes I'm reluctant. I'm resistant. When that alarm goes off, it's demanding my attention. But if I want to resist that alarm, I'll press the snooze button. You know, it's fun. I got to tell my wife. Sometimes when she gets up, she will set her alarm early just so she can snooze it again and again and again And again, it's almost like, you know, that's her way of winning. She'll get up the first time and be like, oh, I got seven more minutes, snooze. (laughs) Get up the second time. You know what? I still got time, snooze. But pressing snooze is our ability to resist or delay the inevitable. You know, if you're going to be successful in life, you're going to have to get up, get out of bed, and get moving. And I thought about God's alarm clocks throughout human history. You know, God sent the prophets in biblical days, and that was an alarm clock. They were sounding an alarm to the people. Hey, don't press snooze. Awake. You got to get stirred. You got to get moving. God's doing something. Don't miss it. Sometimes God will use prophets. Sometimes he'll use pandemics. Sometimes he'll use pain. But there's all different kinds of alarms going off, and the Lord is trying to awaken his church. Look at this scripture in Romans 13, 11. Paul says, this is all the more urgent. Come on, do you sense the urgency in this hour? This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Listen to me, church. The clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. He says, time is running out. Wake up. Wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Uh, I believe that there's an alarm clock going off and God is using this season to get the attention of his church. 
He's saying, oh, beloved, awaken. Rise out of your slumber. Uh, Don't sleep through the great moments that God is wanting to create through his church in the earth today. You see, the Israelites, they had to strip themselves of their ornaments, that that posture of repentance. God, forgive us for elevating anything above you. Listen, there's nothing wrong with sports. There's nothing wrong with pleasure or entertainment. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. I'm not saying don't love those things, but I'm challenging us to love God more. May our love for God be greater than our attraction to anything in this world. Don't love anything more than you love God. You see, the Israelites had fallen into idol worship, and God says, I got to strip that away. You will have no other gods before me. You see, they shifted their focus from outward appearance to an inward condition. Look at what it says here in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Finally, verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I want you to see this this second picture This is just as powerful. The first is the stripping away of the ornaments, and that's a picture of repentance. But now the Bible introduces this tent of meeting, and that's all about relationship. You know, repentance, the reason why we repent is to restore us back into relationship with God. Hear me, church. We got to get back to relationship. We got to get back to that, that intimate exchange with the Lord. The, the Bible says, it uses the, the phrase face to face. Moses would talk face to face as if God were a, a friend. That's a powerful picture in the Hebrew. It's a very intense, up close, and personal exchange. Uh, thank God for, for Zoom calls and, 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 and FaceTime. But man, there is an intimacy that God wants us to have with him, and it only comes through relationship. Uh, it has nothing to do with religion, okay? I want to take a moment to distinguish between these two thoughts. You see, because even when, when the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf, they had a, a, an image of religion. They were going through a ritual, a routine, but they had forfeited a relationship. You know, if if God is going to build his church in these last days, it won't be on religion. It's going to be built on relationship. You see, religion has had its day, and that day is done. Religion has never represented Jesus 
accurately. When I'm talking about a renewal, when I'm talking about a revival, I'm not talking about going back to some religious exercise and going through some formality. Listen, Jesus said, don't put new wine in old wineskins. I'm not talking about a wineskin. I'm talking about a fresh outpouring of joy, a new move of God's spirit that says relationship, connection. You see, you can have all kinds of knowledge about God and never have an experience with God. I want to say that again. We can grow in our knowledge about God and never have a genuine moment or an experience with God. It's so important when we talk about getting back to church that we're not talking about getting back to a ritual are some religious exercise. It's not a building. Man, it's about the spirit of God within the people. It's about a relationship and a connection to the Lord God Almighty. I, I thought about this uh, several years ago. In the early days of our church, this was probably this was mid-90s, okay? I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but I was actually a part. In the early days of our church, I was a part of the worship team. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? Oh, yeah, I was the trumpet player. But you didn't know we had a brass section back in the day. Early days of the church, I was, we had a couple of trumpets. I think we had a trombone, maybe even a saxophone player, man. And I was one of the trumpeteers on the worship team. And I remember, you know, Rachel and I, we weren't even married back then. I think we were dating. I was still in college. Church was just getting started. I was blowing my trumpet, getting all red in the face, you know, veins popping out of my neck. And I remember one service being on stage, and we were we were. Play, we were going through the worship set, and we were playing a song, and that song was something about the love of God. I remember it was some declaration about how God loves me. I don't know what he sees in me, but he loves me. And as I was playing, going through, we'd already practiced the song. I was going through the routine. I knew the notes I was supposed to play. That song began to minister to me. I began to think about the words of that song. I thought less about my performance. And I had a personal moment with God on that stage. And it hit me so hard, a revelation of the love of God for little old Mike. Because I want to tell you what, I was not feeling very lovable at all. I went into church that morning feeling worthless, feeling lousy about myself, feeling like a failure. And to know that God would love me even in spite of the worst about me, it broke me down. I had to put my trumpet down and I'm on my knees and just weeping. And I remember at the end of that song, Pastor Dino came up on stage and he walked right over to me and he just put his arms around me. And that day, Dino was wearing this three-piece suit. I mean, it was like a brand-new suit, man. I mean, it was tailored. It was to perfection. He hugged me, and I'm just blowing snot bubbles all over him, man. And he didn't care. He just wrapped me up. And in that moment, I felt the arms of Jesus holding me. It's like, you know, hundreds of people in the building, and yet that moment was just for me. And I wonder, how many times have we gone to church in a crowd of people and we've sung our songs and we've said our prayers and we've done all of the, the things that we normally do in church, but we walk away never having experienced God. You see, repentance will open up the doorway to relationship and people are hungry for an experience with God. I don't want to get back in this building in two weeks and just go through the motions and say, hey, we're back on our religious train 
Listen, that train leads to nowhere. In fact, I'm going to disembark. I don't want to be on that train. I want a relationship with the Lord. I want an experience with God. You know, I thought about this particular episode in, in John chapter 11. In John 11, verse 54, the Bible says that some religious leaders of that day, it was in preparation of the Passover, that they were all gathered in Jerusalem, and there they were in the temple. I want you to look, look at this with me in, in John eleven fifty four. The Bible says this, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. At this point in his ministry, he no longer walked publicly with them. That's interesting. He wasn't walking with them like he used to. There, there was no teachings, no more miracles, no more revivals. Jesus was hidden from them, verse 54. Look at verse 56. When they sought Jesus and they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, they asked this question, hey, what do you think? That he'll come to the feast or not? Now get this picture. The religious leaders are looking for Jesus in the temple at the time of Passover. They're looking for him and they can't find him. He's no longer walking among them. Now, if you're searching for Jesus, Lord, if you're anywhere, surely you're at church. Surely you're among the people at church. Yet all the Pharisees and the leaders of that day, in the temple, they're looking for Jesus and they can't find him. I read that again this week and I thought, wow, what an indictment against the church. That people could actually come to our buildings and they find programs, uh, they find incredible lights and beautiful sounds, man, great screens and, you know, all the creativity and, man, and thank God for all of it. But you know what? If we don't have Jesus, all of that means very little. Uh, I would hate to think that people would come to the church looking for Jesus and all they get is a form of religion. Why was it that Jesus didn't walk publicly with them anymore? Well, he wasn't welcomed. There wasn't margin or room for him. And I wonder if we've just gotten so full of ourselves and our stuff, uh, we, we're supposed to be the people of God, but he's not found among us. You see, repentance will throw the door of relationship wide open. And that's desperately what we need. If we're going to experience revival in this day, it's going to have to be centered around the movement and the activity and the presence of God Almighty. People are hungry for an encounter with God. And I believe that we are in position to experience the greatest revival this world has ever seen. I really sense that. I feel that. That's not just pie-in-the-sky type stuff. I sense that in my soul. We're at a great time of, of moral decay and spiritual decline. If there's ever a day when we need life again, it is now. The only way we're going to experience that is through genuine repentance. God, strip us of all of our ornaments. God, any idol that we have in our lives, well, we can take a good thing and exalt it above God. And God says, no, 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 no golden calves. You know, get rid of your idolatry. If we'll repent of our sin and then step into relationship, not religion, relationship, the presence of God will bring the power of God to be released in the earth today. I'm so hungry for this. I feel like as a church, we are poised and positioned 
for this. You know, in the 1940s, there was a professor of theology. His name was Professor Orr. And he was based out of London, England. And he taught students for for generations about biblical history, church history, and the move of God throughout the earth. And he took one of his classes on a field trip in London, England. And they went to the house of John Wesley. Many of you, you've heard that name, John Wesley. You know, he's one of the great reformers, one of the great theologians and revivalist of the 1700s. And they went to his home. And these students were so excited. They loaded up the bus and pulled up to John Wesley's historic home. They filed off the bus and they, they walk in the house. And, and the, the tour guide told him, hey, th- this is his kitchen. This is where, where John would eat in the morning. And here was kind of his routine. And so all the students were gathered in the kitchen. Then the tour went over to uh, uh, his study where he had all of his books. Some of the old books that he had read and, and actually had written were still on the shelf. They, they pulled these books off the, the shelf and they looked at the spine. They flipped open and kind of saw the, the documents that he had made. Even some handwritten notes of sermons that he had written were right there on the desk. So they moved from the kitchen to the study. And then when they left the study, they walked up the stairs. And on the second floor was John Wesley's bedroom. All the students, they kind of filed around that bed and the, the, the tour guide is, is talking to the students about you know, what John valued and what his routine was and the history of, of how he came to know God. And then the tour guide pointed out a patch of carpet right next to the bed. And what was interesting about this patch of carpet, as he got down on one knee, all the students noticed that there were two worn patches right next to the bed. And the tour guide said, When John would wake up in the morning, he would roll out of bed. And the first thing he did was kneel beside his bed. And these two worn patches are the places where he would put his knees. And he would lay across this bed. And he would pray that God would send revival. Hour upon hour. Day after day. And if you know church history, the first and second great awakenings was sparked through John Wesley's ministry. Some of the greatest revivals the world had ever seen was birthed through the ministry of this one man. And there were patches that were worn in the carpet right beside his bed. Well, the students gathered around and man, they were fascinated to see this was the place. This was the very space. Well, the tour was over and everybody... They left the house, got back on the bus. Well, Professor Orr got on the bus and was given a head count, and, well, he was missing one. There was a student that was missing. So he walks back into the house. He goes into the kitchen. Nobody's there. Walks into the study. Again, it was empty. As he's climbing up the stairs, he hears something in the bedroom. Somebody was there. He walked into the bedroom, and he noticed across the bed on the other side, all he could see was the head and shoulders of a student stretched out across that bed and that student was saying something praying mumbling something and he was right there he put the student's knees right in the same place of the worn patches on that carpet and as he laid across that bed this student prayed lord would you do it again god would you do it again lord if you did it then i know you can do it again and start with me well the professor looked at the student let him have that moment And then finally he said, Billy, it's time to go. we got to get back on the bus. So Billy Graham stood up from that bed and walked back onto the bus. And you know the story as well as I do. 
God did it again. And God did it through him. And I guess my prayer for us as a spiritual family, would we find a space and a place on our knees? Some of us need to to wear down some carpet and say, Lord, would you do it again and would you start with me? If there's going to be a great outpouring of your spirit, God, let it start. Let it spark within my own soul. You see, if God did it through William Seymour in the great Azusa Street Revival, if God did it through John Wesley in the great awakenings of the 17th and 18th century, if God could use Billy Graham, I'm telling you, if God can use one person, why not me? Why not you? Why not us? You see, I don't want to just teach on revival. I don't want to just study it. I don't want to just talk about it. I want to experience it. Thank you for listening. Take a moment and subscribe so you can become a part of the community here and stay up to date with what is happening at Healing Place Church. For more information about HPC, visit healingplacechurch.org.